is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamer series, where we've interviewed folks ranging from Mario Andretti, whose family was forced out of their home in Italy and came to America with absolutely nothing. Mario went on to be called one of the greatest athletes of the 20th century and the greatest race car driver of the 20th century. And we also did Bernie Marino's life story, whose wealthy family actually chose to leave Colombia just so that Bernie and his siblings could start from scratch and earn their own success, earn their own dreams. You can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and go to Our American Dreamers series. There are many there, and you'll love them. And today, we're fortunate to be joined by Vale Horton, the founder of the medical device company Keen Healthcare, and a guy who's disabled, but would just as quickly point out that we're all disabled. Vale, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You bet. And I was fortunate to see Vale at a public event. There were many prominent speakers who I'd come to see and hear. But don't you love it in life when you go to see a band and the opening act, who you'd never heard, is maybe even better than the band you'd come to see, or at least as good? Uh, I was fortunate to bump into Vale's presentation, and it was stunning and indeed the best of the of the weekend and thus his presence with us today. Tell, tell us, Vale, about your early life. Where were you born? Who were your parents? And talk to the audience about your early difficulties in, in your life. Sure. Well, the most notable thing about when I was born is that I came into this world looking pretty darn funny looking. I uh, don't have any legs, and to be kind of paint the picture of that, my, my right side has no leg. There's just a, a little button there that the kids love to tease me about when they were younger. And on the left side, I have sort of a, uh, about a, a, a one-foot-long leg with, with a real teeny, tiny, odd-looking foot and, and very strange two toes, and uh, we all call that the flipper. And then my left arm is just one big bone at a 90-degree angle, so I can't touch my face. It's probably the most normal-looking limb I have, and, and people are always surprised that, that when they hear that I can't touch my face with my left arm. And then my right arm looks like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, where it just has three fingers and and a very odd, strange-looking arm, but boy, it sure gets the job done. I was born in Southern California in a small town called Fullerton, California, and when I was born, uh, my parents made a very quick decision at that time that they uh, weren't going to be able to be my parents, and so they put me up for adoption, and I lived uh, six months in a foster home, and I remember you know, as as much older looking at my adoption file and reading how people articulated what my life was going to be like. And it was a pretty doom and gloom story. I was going to probably be in a home and, uh, you know, a, a 24-hour cared home and that I would need a special school. And I don't think anyone was looking at that, at my life at that time and saying, this guy's going to change the world for the better. And uh, a young couple in their mid-20s who had already had two of their own biological beautiful daughters uh, decides to adopt a boy. And growing up, they always said they had to buy their boy. They also said they found me in the banana section of the grocery store. But, uh, but primarily, they said they had to buy their boy. And after me, they had a fourth child, a biological beautiful daughter as well. So three girls and one boy. And uh, growing up, uh, you know, by parents who chose me uh, is so unique and so great because they they taught me how to be independent versus dependent, and I'm sure we'll probably get into some stories about that, but um, those are the early years of my life. 
and lucky for you, for these parents. I mean, my goodness. And what are you, do you, do you have um, sort of spiritual beliefs about these matters? Because, my goodness, some, something put these people in your path. You had to believe that, I, I suspect. Yes, my, uh, I could say quite a bit on that. One story is that my, when I met my biological father many, many, many years later at 19 years old, he, he always contemplated why I was born this way. And I always told him that God made me this way. And he said, no. He said, God allowed you to be made that way, but God didn't make you that way. And I got to, I always corrected him. And I got to say, God absolutely made me this way. I am so lucky of my faith in God because, yes, as soon as I was born, um, you know, God had so many big plans for my life and how great that, um, you know, he talked to the Hortons and had the Hortons adopt me and uh, how great throughout all of my life I have such God-defining moments. And um, you got to look for them. Um, and in my life, it's a little bit easier to look for them just because my life is so visible, so to speak. But there are God moments throughout everyone's life. Some people are either open to it or some people aren't, but I'm absolutely open to it. And my faith is every day I live for God. Well, it's a beautiful thing. And by the way, folks listening know that we, we tell every kind of story here, secular stories, faith stories, and that's the beautiful and rich nature of the fabric of this great country. Believers, non-believers all get together every day and share stories in their lives and workplaces and products and services. Uh, tell me this about this remarkable family, though. You said, my parents chose me. Um, just spend a little more time on that, because that is a beautiful statement. I, I don't know. I don't know. I've never been asked that question, Lee. Um, my parents chose me. I have four children, and I can't imagine myself going and adopting a baby boy without legs and without arms. It's, it's a huge task. I mean, if you look at that for face value, who on earth would do such a beautiful and courageous thing? And they did, and they didn't have to. And where that thought even entered, I've tried to ask them. I said, why on earth did you adopt me? And, and they almost don't have an answer. It's like it's like God just did it. Yep. I think no that, I think Vale. I think you just hit it. God just did it. And when we come back, we're going to continue this remarkable American story, this beautiful story, Vale Horton, his life story. After these messages, this is our American stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we continue our conversation with Vale Horton. We left off talking about these remarkable parents who, as Vale told us, chose him, chose me. Vale, this, this had to be a, a not only the defining moment in your life, but obviously it, it, in, a, in a sense gave you life. Uh, talk about the, 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 the impediments and the things you had to deal with as it related to your peers and to other people. I mean, other people were constantly coming up to you. They had to be laughing. They had to be giggling. They had to be saying things. How did you, as a particularly young person, cope with that? I didn't have to start coping with that, Lee, until I was in junior high. Um, My parents and my sisters and my siblings had to cope with it more than I did. Um, And the reason is, is because I didn't know or I didn't realize everyone was staring at me. And as a kid, I almost thought it was cool. Like, it probably inflated my ego a little bit. Like, wow, all these people are looking at me. Um, I remember when I was four years old, tugging on my mom's shirt, saying, I want uh, legs. And so we, you know, living in Southern California, I went to UCLA and Stanford to get prosthetic legs. And at that time, 1981, uh, they were not looking at kids in my situation and putting them in legs. They were really putting kids in wheelchairs. And so... It was my grandfather, Kelvin Keen Larson, my mom's dad, who said, uh, let's go to New York. And so, you know, I'm not sure how the finances worked. We were um, middle class, uh, financial, financially speaking. Um, I remember my, my parents were in the farming business, and so I remember times where we would hang our clothes out to dry uh, because it was a bad crop. And I remember uh, good years where we would take a family vacation um, in a good year. But, but at any rate, somehow we got to the Rusk Institute in New York and we stayed in the Ronald McDonald house and there they fitted me with prosthetic legs and I, and I, and I walked on crutches and, um, and even going to preschool, um, you know, and being in legs with crutches, I, I still, even though there was some laughing or whatever, uh, I, it didn't really affect me. It wasn't until junior high where human nature takes a turn for the worse, and it goes from that innocent child to very mean, very competitive, and, and very selfish. Yep. And at that time, all the way through my life, even in the business world, uh, you know, even where I'm at today, I experienced that. I have people in today's world calling me a white, privileged American, and my first job was at 10 years old, I paid $300 a month to go to a private junior high school. Um, I look at my children. I couldn't imagine charging them $300 a month to have them go to a private junior high. So I paid for my own private junior high. Uh, where they get white privileges beyond me. But, but at any rate, um, lots of obstacles. And, and to pivot a little bit, had I stayed with my biological family, I would have been an I'm sorry baby. And the fact that I was adopted and given a fresh start and that someone chose me, I was, I was, I was able to, to set a course where I wasn't really disabled in the sense of my physical being. I have tons of disabilities. I'm a control freak. I push my kids too hard. I eat to feel good. But, I, but, 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 but because I was adopted and, and people said, oh, my gosh, what a neat thing. You adopted this baby boy without legs and funny-looking arms. I had the opportunity to live a very celebrated life versus have I, had I stayed with my biological family, the natural reaction of society would have been, oh, I'm so sorry. And so 
yes, I'm disabled, um, and, and yes, there have been challenges. I'll never forget going from the most popular person in high school to uh, a disabled person who everybody looked at me in co- my first year of college and thought I had tubes coming out of my body and, and that, and that uh, you know, uh, uh, that, I, that I didn't know how to uh, fart. I hope fart's okay on the That's radio, but, 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 but you understand what I'm saying. Yep. So uh, I really had a hard time adjusting to uh, a different culture where everyone treated me disabled. And I live my life having to train people on how to interact and, and be with me. I have to, when I go in and out of uh, grocery stores or, or, or any kind of store where there's a door and someone wants to open the door for me, I have to teach them and educate them. No, 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 no. Make me open the door for you. And, uh, and usually that sets them back a little bit. But, um, yeah, that's a little bit about how the disabled you know, being disabled and, and, and growing up, how that, how that was. Well, and by the way, doctors had initially told your parents you'd never be able to walk, and you were lucky to have not only parents who weren't I'm sorry baby parents, um, but they were almost anything's possible parents, and let's, let's run this down, and, and lucky for you. Let's talk about an early moment in your life that shaped you when your adoptive mother put the cereal way up in the top of the cupboard where you couldn't reach it. Pick up the story from there, what you learned from it, and the impact it had on you. Sure. No, I, and it's, it's, it's hilarious. It's kind of like as a family, you know, 40 years later, we're, we're all looking around, why in the world did we store the cereal there? But sure enough, we did. We stored the cereal in the very top shelf, just underneath the ceiling. And I remember asking my mom, Mom, can you help me get down the cereal? And she said, no, I believe you could get it down yourself. So when you're sitting on the floor and you're looking at the ceiling, it's virtually impossible to consider how I'd get that box of cereal down. And so uh, doing the impossible is, is really the emphasis of this story. You know, by the I, way, I, I love talking about, you know, I, my, my dad and my family have spent a lot of time in inner cities. My dad was a great basketball coach. And if you ever notice, no one lowers the bar on inner city poor kids as it relates to sports. They know, they know there are sad stories. They know there are tough circumstances. But when you come into that gym, it's give me 10 push-ups. We're going to be the best we can be. And there's something about the diminished expectations that get thrown on people who have so-called disadvantages that disadvantages them even further. Talk about that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I know that with my kids. I mean, in today's world, our neighbors, our friends, our people at, at the school – they're, they they are really judgmental about how we parent our four kids. And it's shocking to me because they're four fabulous kids. They're great athletes. They're great academically. Um, they're great more so than athletes in, in academics. They're great at their passion. We have a, a thespian child who's one of the most beautiful singers and theatrical people, but people get very uncomfortable with how I push them. I've uh, started and led several companies, for-profits and non-profits, and I'm in Portland, Oregon, where there's, um, you know, there's a real easy culture and judgment of, of not liking corporate America. But i got to tell you, what I do for a living isn't drop a bunch of money to the bottom line. What I do for a living is I hire great people and I help put them on a course to where they're reaching their maximum potential. And I've started a nonprofit called Insight, and I help those people reach their maximum potential. And that gets very hard and awkward at times because there is such a 
scary culture in this country and in this world where if you push someone to their potential, you're doing them harm and you're abusive. And it's just shocking to me. It's not my makeup. It's not how I'm wired. And it's not in any way what I'm about. Yeah, I think there's actually I think there's actually a cultural battle going on in this country right now about how we raise kids, about whether we create entitled kids or whether we push our kids to be self-sufficient and independent kids. And I think in the end, why we push, well, there are a couple of reasons. We don't want them to squander their God-given talent. And moreover, if something were to happen to us as parents, I always tell my parents who I think fawn over their kids too much, what happens if you get hit by a truck? Can your kids manage their own lives? Vale, that's a big question, and my goodness, your parents knew and worked hard early to make sure that you could manage your own life. They did. They, they, they made me, they didn't make me in a harsh way. I mean, at times they probably did, but they really pushed me to do the absolute impossible. And, and you know, to follow up, I ended up getting down that box of cereal, and it was the best bowl of cereal I ever ate because I worked my butt off for it. And it was impossible, and I achieved the impossible. Um, so, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. There, there is a cultural battle going on. Um, I do a lot of work uh, for two organizations, Flourish Now and the Foundation for Government Accountability that helps reform welfare and helps people get jobs. And um, the, the culture out there that America needs to know is we have a welfare country that is rotting our spirit and rotting the innovation and the entrepreneurship that this country was founded on and uh, i don't know if you'll ask me more questions on that but um oh we will val after this message we're going to dig into that we're talking to val horton the founder of the medical device company keen healthcare we're going to talk about how this man became an entrepreneur and more important what he's now doing with his life to inspire others particularly others caught in the bind of lack of work There are so many men and women in this country who are now labeled permanently disabled, collecting disability, when in the end they could and can be working, they just don't see the options, and people have told them there's no hope. But there always is, and there's no more hopeful story than Vale Horton's. More about his story here on Our American Stories after these few messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Vale Horton, the founder of medical device company Keen Healthcare. And Vale, we were just talking about uh, your life. We were getting right into the middle stage, uh, and this healthcare company. How did you, of all people, become an entrepreneur? Talk about that. <laughs> I think I was an entrepreneur when I when I came out of my mom's tummy, and, uh, and I, I know that from seeing the entrepreneurship of my kids, but my first job was at 10 years old selling newspapers. I became the number one paper boy in the Coachella Valley, and there wasn't any person that walked into the grocery store 
who wasn't asked, excuse me, sir or ma'am, would you like a desert sun? And whenever I was asked to work on a holiday weekend, I always said yes. And um, I became the number one paper boy. I, when I graduated from high school, I had uh, well over $12,000 in savings. Um, I'll never forget going to uh, – uh, my parents said that I needed to figure out my health care situation after I was 18. And I went into the Social Security office, and I said I'd, I'd like to see about getting – um, some health benefits for being disabled, and they said, "Well, do you have over two thousand dollars of assets?" And I said, uh, "I said, oh yeah, absolutely." And then they said, "Well, can you give that to someone that you can tr- uh, that you trust, so that you have zero assets or less than two thousand dollars of assets, and we can not only give you health benefits, but we'll also give you a monthly stipend?" And I said, uh, "No, thank you," and uh, walked out of there. And and ever since then, I've I've been an entrepreneur. I owned a uh, a detailing company in high school where I would do the inside of cars and my buddy would do the outside of cars and we would develop a portfolio of customers and once a week we would go clean their car for 10 or $12 and in some cases we would detail their car for $60. And um, when I graduated from college, I'd walked on crutches from the age of four to the age of 22 and all those years walking on crutches, crutches are the same as pirates and peg legs. There's really been no innovation at that time, 2002. From 2002 through today, you'll see some pretty cool-looking crutches, and, and crutches actually have taken a step up from your common wooden stick back in the day of pirates and peg legs. And so um, I had developed osteoarthritis in my shoulder and carpal tunnel in my hands, and I went on a venture to... Uh, develop a better crutch, and we put a shock absorber in it, and we made the bottom of the crutch always have 100% ground contact, even when, it, when it's at an angle. And those two small innovations in that, we made them cool looking. I was tired of people always saying, what happened to you? And we wanted people to say, hey, those are cool crutches. Where'd you get those? And so we started out as a crutch company and realized that there was no incentive to innovate manufacture better medical equipment. And that's why you see all the elderly using a walker where they get their fingers stuck when they close the walker and it's handicapped gray and it's, it's just a piece of junk. And you see people, society has said, oh, throw a tennis ball on the back of a, t- of a walker so that it doesn't fall over and cause you to fall over when you go from carpet to tile or through a doorway or whatever. And so there's just no innovation. I grew up my whole life where duct tape was my best friend in order to keep me mobile and comfortable and safe out in the community and active. And so I started innovating all sorts of medical equipment, and I grew the company to uh, well over uh, $10 million in revenue and 55 employees. And we manufacture and distribute durable medical equipment and supplies, everything from liquid food and incontinence products and uh, in innovative wheelchairs and hospital beds and mattresses and all sorts of neat products. And um, it's all for increasing the safety, mobility, and comfort of the elderly, disabled, and injured. And uh, we're having a lot of fun, even though healthcare works against us in such huge and dramatic ways. We, yeah, we, indeed. We're swimming upstream the entire time. Well, it's interesting, you know, just to take a little bit uh, of, a, of a back on your, just to go back a little bit on that conversation and the story you were just telling, you had that moment where a government official was basically telling you, you know, that money you earned and saved, go get rid of it. And if you do the wrong thing, which is, you know, lie about your wealth, 
we'll go ahead and give you stuff. And you had the uh, innate knowledge to know that was a really bad deal for you. And by the way, it's also a bad deal for the government. But where did that come from that you were able to say, nah, that doesn't work for me? I don't know. I think living life without legs and living life as disabled as I am from the perspective of, you know, how society labels a disability, I, I, uh, I have such a great common sense street smart, such a, a phenomenal emotional intelligence. Um, I'm not the smartest as it comes to books, but as far as emotional intelligence, street smart and common sense, in that situation, there's no way that made any common sense, and it had nothing to do with any goodness whatsoever. And, and all it did was promote me to just stop. Yep. It, yep. It, 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 I felt my life, I felt like had I said yes, my life, I would have died right then. Yeah, and I think many people have been at this crossroads in their life, Phil, and they've just gone down the wrong road. And it's a shame that we have a government that sometimes promotes the wrong choice for people. And it's tragic, actually. At the age of 32, you decided to get around very differently. You decided not to use the crutch you invented along with prosthetics. You decided to just, well, as you put it in that conference, go legless. Why? What do you mean by that? And how have you gotten around since? I was 32 years old, and uh, I have four children. When the children were in preschool and their friends would say, what's matter with your dad? Because uh, in the prosthetic legs and the crutches, you could see that something was wrong with me, but you couldn't really know what was wrong with me. And so my kids in preschool would, would have all their friends say, what's the matter with your dad? They kind of wanted to know, why do I walk on crutches? Why don't my legs exactly move like everyone else's? And so... I always told my kids, it's a, it's a little bit of a white lie, I would told, tell them to tell their friends that I was eaten by a shark. And, um, and boy, did that turn it, you know, that gave my children so much self-esteem because it's the coolest story ever. And, uh, you know, when the kid turned five years old, I had to have that uh, face-to-face conversation of I wasn't eaten by a shark. I was, I was born this way. But, um, but at any rate, I was dreading one of my trips to China. I, I go to China uh, once every two years. And uh, it's like being in your shoes for 54 hours. And when you were in your shoes for 54 hours straight, you can't wait to get your shoes off. I couldn't wait to get my legs off. And, and it's just exhausting. And I was dreading one of those trips. And my, my wife said, why don't you go no legs? And had you asked me at that time what's more comfortable, I would have said legs is more comfortable, with the exception of this trip to China. And so I did. I went no legs. I went on my skateboard, and I realized I'm faster, I'm more mobile, and it's good for the world to see. When I'm on my skateboard in a Chinese airport, I don't know if you saw the movie Cars, yes. where they yep. go cow-tipping and the tractor, uh, you know, when Lightning McQueen revs his engine and all the tractors roll over and smoke. Yep, yep. An entire an entire airport filled with thousands of people, they stop in their tracks and you see smoke coming out of their ears. (laughs) People like me don't exist in China. When you can only have one child and you want that child to take care of you when you're older, I mean, I I don't know, I can't speak from actual statistics. I can only speak from street smarts. But people like me in China don't exist. Hold that thought, and we're going to come back after these moments. This is Lee Habib, and we're talking to Val Horton, the founder of the medical device company Keen Healthcare. 
This is Our American Dreamer series here on Our American Stories. More after these commercial messages. Our American Stories and our final segment in this fascinating hour-long conversation with Vale Horton, his story here on Our American Stories, Our American Dreamer segment. My goodness, is this an American Dream story or what? And Vale, you know, we were just talking about that experience you had in that airport in China. And, you know, when you were at that seminar, my dear friend of mine had asked you a question. And he had said essentially, you know, you know, Vale, when you're on that skateboard and I'm standing up high, it's a little awkward for me to greet you. And, you know, it must be awkward for you. Did you ever think about getting on those crutches and making it more comfortable for all of us up here? And it was a, it was an interesting question. And, uh, Vale, your response was great. You said, hey, pal, I, you know, I'm real busy. That sounds like your problem. You need to get over it. And the whole place laughed. And my friend has been telling people that story for a very long time, and uh, and thanks for doing that for him. He needed a lift at that moment in his life. He had just recently lost his dad, uh, who he was very close to. At the age of uh, at the uh, at, at a certain age in your life, Vale, you had to be starting to think about love. You had to start to be thinking about kids. And uh, talk about the woman in your life. Uh, talk about your family and your kids. Did you ever think when you were young that you'd be not only an entrepreneur but a father? Uh, I had two fears in life, Lee. I was scared that I would never get married, and I was scared that I would never be able to be a kid. I, was, I, I, I thought to myself, how in the world, if I was alone with the baby, get the baby to the hospital in, the, in a case of an emergency? And um, I remember going home one day and saying to my sister, who was in uh, a freshman in high school at the time, saying, uh, you know, being on my soapbox, saying I'm, I could never get married. And, and she said, uh, you know, of course, she's a freshman in high school. She said, of course, you could get married, stupid. You could marry some bum off the street. And for whatever reason, her response uh, created a notion in my head where she was right. I could. I had money. I, I, I could provide and that I could get married. And, and so I started playing a game where I would say, I'm going to ask a girl on a date or to a dance, and then I'm going to ask a prettier one, and then I'm going to try and lay a kiss on, and, and then I'm going to you know, do another kiss and prettier and prettier. And I don't know if, if you know, you guys can, uh, you know, well, all that to say, you, you wouldn't believe the wife I scored. She's beautiful, absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. And, wow, she's, uh, she's, she's passionate and full of life. And um, she, you know, behind every great man, there's a stronger woman. And that, that saying is so true in my life where I was fortunate enough and worked hard enough 
to uh, to have a wife that's very much stronger than me. And um, and as far as the parenting goes of babies, I don't know how to articulate it other than you know using the example of of a mama cat and how she would grab the mama you know the baby cub with her mouth and and walk it to wherever it wanted to go. Of course, I didn't grab any of my children with my mouth. But I just used the body that I have to get the kids into the car and into the into the car seats and into their cribs and in and out of cribs and high chairs and for whatever reason I just made it work. When you when you when you when you go, this is what I have to do, and you just go in that direction. It just works. My mom always taught me, you know, you hit things head on, and so uh, as a parent, that's exactly what I did. And it it I have four wonderful children, and of course I'm biased, but. Oh, they make me cry at, at those fatherly moments all the time. Lucky you. And you, so you've recruited a great woman in your life. You've, you, you didn't recruit kids, but you, you created some great kids. You have some great kids. Let's talk about recruiting your, your people at your company because you have some unique ways of, of recruiting. Uh, talk to folks about that who are running businesses or running anything, frankly. What are your recruiting secrets uh, to success for your company? Uh, the first interview question I always ask is, when's your first job? And I don't care if it's babysitting. I don't care if it's mowing the lawn. I don't care if it's drawing pictures at four years old and selling it to neighbors. But the, but the people who had jobs from six years old to 15 years old, those people you want to hire. And then a very cool secret that I'll give you guys that if anyone said, is there a secret? The secret that I believe that isn't out there is I love hiring middle children. Children in the middle have to do put in extra effort to get in front of their parents' radar. The baby's always on their parents' radar, and the oldest child's always on the radar. But the middle child has to work harder and be more creative in order to get the attention of their parents. And so I love hiring middle children. Um, I love hiring people that parents worked their tails off. Um, and and every business I've started, there are businesses that I've started that I don't necessarily lead at this time. Every business that I am actually in a leadership role of, um, I'm a big believer of results. And the person's either performing or not performing. And if the person's not performing, they're unhappy. And so the sooner you cut them loose, not in a negative way, it has nothing to do with being negative, but the sooner you, conv- you, you let go of someone who isn't driving results, it's better for them. They get to go find another opportunity where they can le- choose to learn and grow. Yep. And so we're a, we're a culture that is, if you got it and you're good, go for it, uh, We've got people that started out as part-time washers of equipment. Um, To Tim, he's now the chief operating officer of a a $12 million company. So, um, you know, we we love those stories. We have people who helped start Keen uh, that are now uh, own their own law firm with multiple offices and 100 attorneys uh, at the law firm that they own and started. So everyone... For the most part, everyone who chooses to be a go-getter has done phenomenally well, either within the organization, but even beyond the organization. Oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great story for us and for anybody to listen to and learn from. Uh, let's talk now about uh, public policy, if we can. And we don't do a lot of public policy here on this show, only when it really matters. 
and when it, uh, it has to do with the culture. And you said the C word before, and I actually think it's a word that shocks people and scares people, this word culture. Uh, but the culture of work, you know, if you ever get a chance, Vale, Martin Luther King gave one of his greatest speech, and it's called the street sweeper speech. And he basically talked about the efficacy of work and that work was godly, work was important. And he said, if you're going to sweep streets, sweep them like Michelangelo would paint buildings. And he goes on and on with these beautiful metaphors about the power, the transcendent power of work, that it gives man meaning and women meaning. It teaches them to bind and bond with their community. And then it allows them to be breadwinners for their family. Um, fundamentally, cosmic stuff. And now we have a record number of people collecting disability in this country. Um, able-bodied and not able-bodied people who could be working, who are not working and are being paid by our government to not work. Uh, talk about that. Oh, where do I begin, Lee? I mean, this, you're, hitting my, you're hitting my ultimate passion. I love God. I love my family. But as, in regards to my country, my country, our country, oh, my word. All of humanity, not all of humanity, that was wrong of me, so much of humanity is wanting to be disabled. They're wanting a label of being different and a label that says, I need special circumstances. We are creating a culture. We are creating a culture, a significant culture, I believe, where people are looking for a label to be special. And we need to get over being special. Yep. Handicapped people want me to help them sue, and I just don't do it. Of course, there are bad eggs out there. I'm not disagreeing with the evil or the bad eggs, but holy mackerel, we've got a society and a culture and an America where we incentivize people to not work. And the amount of handicap spots at any public location has gone from one or two to, you know, Costco's and Sam's clubs where there's 50 parking spots for disabled people. And you watch the people go in and out of the disabled parking spot vehicle and they're walking. I mean, it's one out of 50 that's truly disabled. I park in handicap spots occasionally, but it's only because I'm, uh, you know, um, skating the fine line and being totally wrong because I shouldn't be parking in disabled spots. I should be parking in the furthest away parking spots so that I could get the exercise. But, but, but lazily and in a hurry, I, I, you know, I call it a handicap benefit. I'll park in that spot. I don't have a handicap placard. I'll never get one because I have to get one every six months because, because they only give me a temporary one. And uh, I'll never get one because uh, I just, I don't believe in, 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 I believe there are certain circumstances where someone on oxygen um, or, or an elderly who really is so immobile that you have to have a parking spot. But, but no, so much of, of society is, is wanting to park in the handicap spot rather than get the exercise and make the right decision. This has been an utter delight. We're, we're out of time in our hour, but I think a lot of people are nodding. A lot of people are nodding their heads. You want the truly needy people to have that special circumstance, but my goodness, we all see with our own eyes what we see, and we nod and we wonder, and we're not happy about it. But if you say something, you're that bad apple who dared to have judgment or exercise your opinion. Uh, we've been talking to Vale Horton, the founder of the medical device company Keen Healthcare. 
This has been our American Dreamers segment. And Vail, thank you so much for the time. You're welcome. Thank you, Lee. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we often talk about love and also marriage in our regular Marriage on the Mind series. And before both comes dating, and there was a column about dating that really caught our eye. A gentleman named Isaac Huss wrote a very honest piece entitled, A Man's Insecurities in Dating. A perspective, by the way, that we rarely hear, as most men aren't willing to open up about their insecurities or deficiencies. But Isaac did exactly that in this column for Verily Magazine, and he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. Hi, my name's Isaac. Like many men, I find myself to be, at least from time to time, insecure about being in a relationship with a woman. What are my insecurities? I worry about how I sound when I sing in the shower. I worry that I volunteer too much info about myself. I worry that I'll hit somebody with my car on a date. But, most of all, I worry that I'll suck at love. It's hard for men to admit this stuff. We want to come across like we have it all figured out. Like we are strong enough for the both of us. But in reality, we're dealing with some things internally that inevitably affect our relationships. And... We typically would prefer that nobody know about it, least of all the women in our life. And all men, no matter how confident they appear, are dealing with this. The man you're with is not likely to ever tell you this stuff, but you and I, dear reader, aren't dating. And good can only come from better understanding men in your life and the sort of obstacles they might be dealing with, and by extension, you'd be dealing with. The truth is, my singing voice in the shower is the least of my insecurities when it comes to dating women. But I do worry that I'm not particularly good at choosing a partner, that I put too much emphasis on physical attraction, or a magical spark, if you will, or maybe that I'll allow the pendulum to swing too far the other way and find myself with someone I have plenty in common with but whom I'm not attracted to enough. This leads me to avoid commitment more often than I choose to admit. But then there are times when I'm confident in the woman I'm with that I'm worried about other things. Moving too fast into a relationship and scaring someone away. Or moving too slowly and losing someone. After polling my friends... I discovered that there is a common underlying fear beneath all our shared concerns. What if I don't have what it takes? Most guys, if not all, 
struggle with the possibility that someday they simply won't be able to measure up to the challenges that they'll face in a committed relationship. For me, that can mean anything from not making enough money to not being loving or tender-hearted enough when my partner would need me to be. But perhaps the greatest anxiety in this regard is that she'll leave me. Or worse, she'll stay with me, but be miserable as a result. Either way, there's nothing I could do about it. Or so the narrative goes in my head. This anxiety, of course, comes from history. Especially for those of us who have been dumped before, without much of a reason beyond, quote, I'm just not that into you, unquote. Those past experiences can be like dark clouds hovering overhead. Sometimes it's hard to enjoy what's happening because you're afraid it'll all be over in an instant. My buddy Alex puts it this way. Quote, They'll say no one has ever been so fun, interesting, confident, and thoughtful, yet they want to end it. I'm thankful now that I have a girlfriend three months strong, but I still face that demon from time to time, despite her being completely enamored by me. Unquote. Your man is probably not expecting or even needing you to be his savior. In fact, I personally don't want a woman to think I need any special treatment. Frankly, just being aware that a man might have self-esteem issues or questions of self-worth or in his ability to hold up his end of the bargain is a great first step that will be illuminating and helpful in its own right. If a woman is patient and understanding when I make a mistake, that's huge for me. That doesn't mean she can't be mad when I slip up, nor does it mean I make all the mistakes. I just want to know that we're in this thing together and that my mistakes or shortcomings aren't going to change my standing with her. That will go a long way in helping me feel confident in myself and our relationship, and that will help me be a, met, a better man for her. A wise man once said, Perfect love casts out all fear. In my experience, even beyond patience and understanding, the best cure for relationship anxiety is simply love. Resist the temptation to withhold affection or hold grudges against someone because that can really erode a sense of trust and companionship until it becomes a tug of war or worse, a competition of manipulation. If you sense that he feels inadequate, show him how much you love him. If you find him fretting about your future together, reassure him by your love. If you have a rough patch, when you've wondered if the spark has faded, fan the flames a little bit. Believe me, your efforts won't go unnoticed. And thank you for sharing that, Isaac. That's a confessional of a sort. Not many men would share it, but we all have it. I don't care if you're in the best marriage. On some level, you've got to worry. You don't know. You pray, you hope. Love and perfect love does cast off all fear, but it's the scariest of places. 
And thank you again, Isaac Huss, Verily Magazine, a man's insecurities in dating. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org for all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Download what we do, stream it, or go to iTunes. We're there, too. American Stories, and it's time for another edition of our On Leadership series. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us this fascinating conversation with Steve Bonner, the former CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America, the best and most comprehensive cancer care center and centers in the country. Steve is also a member of the Job Creators Network, a sponsor of this show, and the Job Creators Network does remarkable work on the public policy front for small business owners and business owners across this country. And they give those small business owners a real voice. Now let's go to the beginning of Alex's conversation with Steve Bonner. Steve, we also ask everyone about their very first job as a kid. You know, what was the very first one that paid you? What uh, lessons did you learn from it that yep. helped you get to where you are today? Absolutely. And because we had uh, this family with limited means, um, but also with all this competitive fire burning in us, Certainly, I had a great appetite for better things, and I started working, and I did everything to make a few bucks. I started um, shoveling snow in Minneapolis and mowing lawns and babysitting, um, and then migrated. I uh, cleaned a, a paint factory on Sunday night so that it was clean for the workers to show up to on Monday morning, and uh, I was the youngest paper route runner in Minneapolis that uh, they knew about in history. Um, I convinced a guy who was running the district and couldn't fill this neighborhood to let me have it. So I did the Sunday morning paper delivery at 6 a.m. on snowy, cold uh, winter mornings in Minneapolis, which is lonely and hard and uh, solitary and really developmental. I mean, those things all carry through with me today. Do you remember you were paid for a lot of those jobs, how much an hour? Sure, 10, ten cents an hour for babysitting. <laughs> I remember that, 10 cents an hour. And I would kind of hope that either they wouldn't come home for 10 hours and I'd get a whole <laughs> buck or they'd come home after eight hours and they'd round up and give me a buck, right? And uh, the newspaper route was an enormous education and I was too young to do it. I could do the physical part, but um, the whole management of accounts payable in a newspaper route was new learning to me. So the newspaper company gives you the newspapers and you deliver them, but you owe the newspaper for what they give you. And then you have to go out and collect, door-to-door collect, and make sure you collect enough to be able to pay the newspapers and then what's left is yours. And 
you go through this cycle of, and I didn't think about it this way, but you're building this account payable to the newspaper, you're delivering, you're collecting, you don't think about it that, you know, Mrs. Jones is never home or she doesn't answer her door, so she now owes you four bucks and you owe the newspaper three eighty. And uh, if you don't get it from somewhere else, you're dead. And you spend a night collecting and you stop by the drugstore and you buy a candy bar and you see uh, another friend or two and you're a big shot, so you buy them a couple candy bars. And then you go to pay the newspaper what you owe them and you say, wait a minute, you know, where's the cash? And so was... To me, it was my first real look at some of the complexities of simple business economics. Did you have to get customers then for your routes, or were you in charge sure. of an area and you had to yeah. recruit customers? Yeah, and they could call a number and subscribe, but you also could ring the doorbell and you could leave free newspapers. You know, if you wound up with say seventy-five newspapers and somebody had canceled and they hadn't caught up with it yet, so you only delivered seventy-three, you might deliver the other two to somebody with a little note. You know, I'm here at five in the morning. I'd love to deliver your Sunday newspaper. Here's my number or whatever. Give me a call. Did that teach you a lot about selling? Yeah. You know, I mean, persuasion and customer relationships, the people that were not deadbeats, but they were very, very challenging to collect from, you know, and the relationship management of that. And humor's always been a big part of our lives. That was another big value for my parents was, you know, have fun, find the humor in things, know that stressful times can often be diffused through the use of humor and self-deprecating humor and all that. And so to ring and ring and ring a doorbell and you know they're in there and then they finally come and they're ticked off at you for being so persistent but you know you got to pay for their newspapers and so you know a little bit of humor or fun can take that out and so did you crack a joke to them when they got to the door i wouldn't i mean i wouldn't crack a joke but i might say you know it's your friendly newspaper boy again and sorry to keep ringing um but whatever or you know you might see something in their property that you could have some fun with. It was an expression of who they were and what was important to them. You know, little ways to connect with some twinkle. It's more than just pay your damn bill. So we've heard about Steve's first jobs as a young kid, and a young kid, by the way, who never dreamed of becoming a healthcare executive. What kid does? Until he later met Cancer Treatment Centers of America's founder, Dick Stevenson. One thing I want to ask you about is your joining of uh, becoming the CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. You did something fascinating before accepting the offer. What did you do? So the the context on that was literally three years of back and forth and with this visionary um, innovator who had never scaled a business and who looked at me and said, here comes the big company bureaucrat who's going to overwhelm my good idea with bureaucracy. And I looked at him and I said, so here's a brilliant small-minded innovator who doesn't understand infrastructure, yet I love his vision. Um, And we kept circling back to this. And uh, we did two things on parallel tracks. One, I went to another startup in financial services and joined his board as an advisor. And he hired another CEO and tried to do it with, uh, in my opinion, a sub-optimal leader. Um, And so... These things converged in a couple ways, but I, in the meantime, I got to go and meet with some CTCA patients, and that was a very compelling part of the process. And I met with, I remember a patient who spent the time with me, didn't know who I was, 
but basically said, you know, this place is special. I've been, I've had cancer, I've been treated, and they said, if it weren't for Cancer Treatment Centers of America, I would be dead today. And just a light went off in my head. I've created jobs, you know, financial security with neat products and all that stuff. I've never saved a life with my career, and that's a little bit arrogant because I can't do it myself, but that just pulled me even harder towards it, and in the meantime, this other CEO was failing, and so my desire and Dick's need and desire just caused us both to get much more creative about how we could structure a win-win, and that coalesced to my joining the company. When Steve became the CEO, things were not exactly going swimmingly there, and so I asked him, where did he decide to start for turning things around? If you've got a great idea and you're putting a lot of energy and time and resources into it and it's not behaving the way you want, you start to populate it with more ideas and hope that those will dig you out of what you're trying to do. And so when I came in, uh, the company had lost significant money the year before, didn't have the resources to do that again. So it was kind of the perfect storm. Nobody could defend the old way. We were very committed to the mission, but the business execution of that needed to be re-examined. And so we went through a wonderful process that I had discovered and worked with before of off-site key people. What's the core of this? You know, Where's the real secret sauce here? And how do we articulate that into a mission and a vision and a set of values? And then let's step back and look at everything that's consuming resources and ask what comes through that filter. And what we found were uh, four different businesses, healthcare businesses, that had been appended on to this as an idea that this might be the magic formula to break out by adding another product or service line or whatever. And as we looked at them, we said, that's strategically irrelevant. And so we sold them, shut them down, and then just focused on building this integrated, holistic, patient-centric delivery of treatment for patients with late-stage complex cancer. You're speaking about it all very calmly, but it's a very dramatic thing to do. You know, it ballsy on your part to shut down these businesses that clearly other people had thought were good ideas. Yeah, but the good news was everybody sat at the table, you know, the key decision makers sat at the table with us and thrashed through this, you know, we'll deal with current reality later, just what is it that's really going to give us a right to be successful? And when we come back, more with Steve Bonner, the former CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America and a member of the Job Creators Network. This is our On Leadership series. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories. This is our On Leadership series. And today we're focusing on Steve Bonner's story, the former CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. And let's go back to Alex and his conversation with Steve. A company's management refocusing in on the mission is crucial. But at the end of the day, they're only a few people. And most of the time, they're not the ones directly interacting with their customers, the patients. And so how do you get all of your people to be driven towards the mission? We recruit very hard, and we created an onboarding process, which began with a recognition that every wonderful person that you hire, no matter how carefully you recruit, and the more successful they've been, the even more so, are a cultural terrorist. They've been successful because they've done what they've done. You're hiring because they've been successful, and they're instinctively going to bring what they worked for them somewhere else. And so you need to have that conversation. And so day one for every employee was a very thoughtful conversation about mission, vision, values, brand promise. This is who we are. This is what we do. Does this work for you? Are you committed to this? And how do we do that? And then there's, a, like, you start on a Monday, there's a day three or five feedback component to that, and there's a day 30. Um, we also didn't guide the first day by saying, well, you're here, welcome, you know, you're going to spend the day with Herb. Um, and you say, why with Herb? And the real answer is because Herb doesn't have anything else to do, and the reason he has anything else to do is because he's probably a cultural terrorist too. And so you start with, you know, the most senior person in your chain, you have this opening conversation, and then you spend your time with one of the busiest people because that's who's really going to be relevant. Gosh, Steve's making me nervous. Am I a cultural terrorist in my own company? I'm still here so far. I'm still here so far. Anyways, in addition to their highly intentional recruiting and onboarding process, Cancer Treatment Centers of America created a company-wide bonus pool from part-time janitors all the way up to the founder that encouraged everyone to be aligned with the patient-centered mission, a bonus pool that would be paid out if they, collectively, as a team, hit fully laid out key goals. The structure was in place when I came. It had never paid out. Um, and then the first, no, the, let's see, we went through a cleanup period and then we started to gain traction. And I think the third year I was there, we went positive in the pool and paid out like a quarter of a percent to everybody. But it was, holy cow, you know, all these years this is really paying out. And we got up to 14%, 15% of base pay. Wow. Imagine getting a bonus of 15% of your salary. Woo! But inevitably, for some folks, a noble mission and generous incentives aren't enough to align themselves with the team. And you have to cut the cord. So how did Steve Bonner handle that as CEO? When it comes to termination, to do it in a way that is mutually respectful. And in my opinion, a termination is more about the people who stay than it is about the people who go. And the culture needs to see that even though you've come to the conclusion that this person needs to leave, it's with respect. That is fascinating. Even though you're treating the people leaving with respect because it's the right thing to do, Steve's saying that it's actually more about the people who stay and showing them how much you respect your people. I next asked Steve a question we ask every guest. Steve, talk about, uh, is there a passion or a quirk or a hobby that folks wouldn't expect from you? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what people expect, right? Um, I think one of the more amusing things that I get is uh, wander around my neighborhood and people can't see on the radio, but I'm 6'2 and 205 pounds and I'm following these two little 12-pound poodles at the end of a string, you know, lead me down the road and, you know, here I am in my own mind, a successful multi-billion dollar company CEO and uh, I'm just following these two little mindless, lovable poodles around. That surprises people. Does it just feel ridiculous? It feels sweet to me. I mean, yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, where they take me may be the same and it may be different. And they have their little interactions, too. So it's another exercise in leadership. Always be leading. It sure is better than always be closing. And when you have kids like Steve does, you are always leading. And it always isn't so clear cut. Talk about on the other side of it now as a parent, and especially, you know, as a financially successful parent, how do you, you know, pass your values on to your kids, which can be a tricky thing to do? Yeah, it's a very tricky thing to do. And the thing that jumps into my mind is that the most important job we all have, and the one that we get absolutely no training for, is being a parent. <laughs> and if you ask me where... There are things I would do differently and could have done better. It would have been along that spectrum of uh, raising and teaching my own kids. And it wasn't that I wasn't available. It was that I'm a workaholic, you know, and it was that uh, while I got to sporting events and all that stuff, I probably wasn't as available. When you talk about how much our patients travel, you know, how much I traveled yeah. and I loved every minute of it, but looking back, you know, there's some things that I certainly could do better with them. But I think the important things that get harder when you have more financial resources are to, you know, empower your kids to make their own mistakes and to have to find their own way. And it's easy to, very easy to make sure that the tuition is paid and that the clothes are there and the travel is done and athletic support is there and so forth. And I just know how much more effective I am as a person because I learned. And this is a favorite phrase of the owner of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. I learned that scarcity is your friend. It's true. When you want something you don't have and you don't have the resources to get it to see how that engages creativity and the hard work and the competitiveness and the humor and the beguile and all that stuff is really spectacular Mm -hmm. and I think that unintentionally some of that erodes in the environment we create for our kids as we start to achieve the things that we've always wanted. You know, that's the irony is, you know, this is all what we wanted for ourselves and we want to share that and we want to be generous with it. And if we don't do it right, we wind up taking some of these experiences out and deprive our kids of some of those tools that, at least for me, have been so important to my own progress. Yeah. Amen. Wow. Steve's honest self-reflection there is quite an example for us all. And he's spot on that raising kids is one of the most important things in our lives. And yet it's one of the things that we receive the least training for. Same with marriage. As my colleague Stan jokes, as my single colleague Stan jokes, do your kids and wife come with instruction manuals? Only if so. Only if so, my friend. That's Steve Bonner, ladies and gents, and I'm Alex Cortez. And great job on that as always, Alex. And 
And what a, what a treat it is to just hear from these folks and hear from them about their personal lives, their failings, because you can tell. I mean, he, he has some regrets about some of the time he spent and where he spent it. Um, and I don't know many people who don't look back and say, I could have done a thing or two differently. I'm, I'm always uh, a little bit uh, off-put by anybody who says, I didn't do anything wrong and I, I wouldn't do anything different. I go, okay, nice talking with you. And by the way, just on a side note here, um, you, you had this great founder and a dynamic founder, and then you had a, a CEO who helped propel and grow Cancer Treatment Centers of America 30 times its size when he got there. And this is what happens when you have a great founder, a great CEO, a great team. Everybody's on the same page. And Cancer Treatment Centers of America, one of the great, great uh, medical centers and treatment centers in the country uh, because they're focused around a, a mission and value statement that they execute on. And my goodness, we can all learn how to do that in our daily lives. By the way, these things also happen in our story on Home Depot. Uh, yeah, the visionary founder, Bernie Marcus, he was really like the chief salesman. But as we learned when we did our hour on Home Depot, Arthur Blank was the guy who kept the train on the tracks and would sometimes say, Bernie, no, stop selling. And Langone, Ken Langone, he was out there getting the money. You need a team. And we learned that here in our American stories, that leaders know how to lead, but they also know how to follow. This is Lee Habib, Steve Bonner, on leadership, here on Our American Stories. stories and over the last few decades instrumental music has all but disappeared from pop culture but why our own jesse edwards who loves music shares some ideas on what might have happened to bring about this change four point one five That was the percentage of sales shared by the jazz and classical music genres combined in the United States in 2012. This includes legends in pop culture like Louis Armstrong, Leonard Bernstein, current artists working within them like Diana Krall or Josh Bell, and those who make most of us cringe like Kenny G. But why is it? Why is it that the two genres of music that take the most training, practice, and patience in order for the artist to perfect and be able to competently perform hold such a modicum amount of sales in the United States market, even despite the fact that these two genres are regarded highly enough by our culture to be taught at every school with a music department and are considered forms of fine art? I'm not specifically talking about jazz or classical. I point them out because they consist of what it is that I'm referring to. Instrumental music. Think about it. What was the last instrumental song that went to number one on the U.S. pop charts? How about the top 20 or top 40 for that matter? In the 1930s and 40s, arguably the very beginning of American pop culture music, instrumental was the norm, and many of the great pieces of pop music from that period were instrumental. Benny Goodman's Sing 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 or Duke Ellington's Take the A-Train, Glenn Miller's In the Mood. Ironically, all of those song titles do have lyrics written for them, but it's the instrumental versions that are best remembered. Fast forward the clock to the 1960s and instrumental music was still commonplace. 103 instrumentals cracked the Billboard Top 20, nine of which went number one. 
In the 1970s, there was a bit of a change. Many pop rock groups were no longer doing purely instrumental works, but were having featured instrumental sections like guitar and keyboard solos. Many times these instrumental sections were found at the end of a song, allowing for improvisational solos at live concerts. During that decade, only 45 instrumentals reached the top 20 status on the Billboard pop chart. But roughly half of these had success directly due to a movie television connection or were arrangements of previously familiar material. Beethoven literally went number one in America in September of 1976, nearly 150 years after he died in Europe, all because a remixed version of this classic was featured on the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever. The 1980s and 90s saw a continuation of what was established in the 70s, only to a lesser extent, with artists vying for MTV airplay the focus fell more on image and less about the performance. As such, the majority of instrumental music that found its way to the mainstream was originally written for movies and television. Today, instrumental music has become all but extinct in the realm of popular music. And by popular music, I'm referring to any new music that's being played on commercial radio or marketed in a very similar fashion. The proof here being that no instrumental has reached the top 20 since Kenny G's Olding Zine Millennium Remix in 1999. No! 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 For those of you keeping track, the last instrumental work to attain the top spot on the pop charts is keyboardist Jan Hammer's Miami Vice theme from 1985. The last one to the top of the pops, not originally written for movies or television, was a song called Rise by Herb Alpert in 1979. But the piece did receive plenty of television help to attain the number one spot. The last instrumental without the assistance of visual media to go number one was arguably 1975's The Hustle by Van McCoy in the Soul Symphony. I say arguably because the song is predominantly instrumental. It does include vocals with tangible words. Otherwise, the honor goes to the 1973 Barry White composition called Love's Theme. So what is it about instrumental music that people are no longer able to understand or appreciate? Perhaps the answer is that in the last few generations, people have become less and less musically inclined and every corner of our pop culture seems to exacerbate the diminishing of the typical appreciation and knowledge of music as art. This goes beyond the slashing of public school budgets where typically music and art are the first things to go. Looking back, my grandpa talked about the days in his youth when just about everybody competently played at least one instrument. And when artists came to town, they found local players to be the backing band. But my grandfather's generation is basically the first to live their entire lives with easy and immediate access to music due to the inventions of radio and records. Yet, it was still expected for a child to learn an instrument. Before these inventions, if you wanted to hear music, you had to perform it yourself or go to the symphony, or find someone playing on the front porch, at the barber shop, or in the local tavern. Now, at the flip of a switch, we all have immediate access to high-quality music. One effect of having immediate access to music is that less and less people learn how to play an instrument simply because it's no longer necessary to play in order to have access to music. With having less and less people playing, the quality of those who do play also gets diminished because the talent pool becomes smaller. Basically, with less people playing any musical instruments, 
There's less understanding of music because there are many people finding no purpose in learning anything about the art. With this lack of musical knowledge, our ears have basically become lazier and lazier. people realize that John Mellencamp's R.O.C.K. in the USA, John Cafferty's On the Dark Side, and What I Like About You by the Romantics are basically all the same song. To this end, if we put different words to any given tune, for many, it becomes an entirely new song. In music, groups that want to make it big target the United States and foreign groups have lyrics written in English and sing them with American accents. Perhaps most notable of these English as a second language groups are ABBA and Scorpions. Even native English speakers use a similar approach to broaden their marketability. The Beatles, U2, and Adele have all recorded with American accents on their songs that became popular hits in the United States. How many of us commonly listen to music in a language that we don't understand? What you'll find is that the vocalist becomes another instrument and that what matters most in the song are the elements that make the music musical and artistic. Tes yeux qui font baisser les miens Un rire qui se perd sur sa bouche Voilà le portrait sans retouche De l'homme auquel j'appartiens You wind up listening to instrumental music. This means that most non-English speakers grow up listening to a lot of instrumental music, which explains why jazz and classical music and the musicians who perform them have a greater share of the markets and have more readily available performances and more lucrative ones at that in Europe, Asia, and South America than they do in the United States. Thanks to the advent of MTV, music has become more and more about the visual. It's become more important to have a great video than great music. The concert experience no longer is dependent upon the musician's ability to interpret the songs selected for a performance, but are loaded with light shows, pyrotechnics, and dancers. We're at a point where music without visual appeal cannot command the attention of an audience. Music has become the background element, a side dish served with the main course. Think about it. Many people listen to music while working, exercising, driving a vehicle, playing a game, cooking, writing, talking, whatever. Yes, the music is present, but it isn't the focus of attention. It's a backdrop, an accompaniment to something else. Which is the difference between hearing music and listening to it. When actually listening to music is where 100% of your attention lies without any outside distractions taking you away from the musical experience. At the end of a listening session, you should be mentally exhausted because of your focused attention on every nuance throughout the duration of Beethoven's Fifth or Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Visual dominance or outside distractions are not the only problems. The larger problem is the dominance of thought. Take the time to go to a modern art exhibit or museum and take note of how often you find yourself thinking, I could have done this, or that looks like something a third grader did, or... Why is this even in a museum in the first place? Most people are unable or unwilling to let the abstraction affect their emotions directly. The experience must be filtered through interpretation. In many ways, it's a crutch that we all use to deal with fears that state, I don't understand this, and if I admit that I don't understand this, I look unsophisticated, ignorant, and stupid. 
These types of fears fill the mind with noise, and the audience member is unable to see, hear, taste, feel, dare I say, unable to understand and appreciate the art presented before them. The same thing happens with instrumental music. Suddenly, without any lyrics, there's nothing for the mind to latch onto, and the projection of emotional values becomes more difficult. However, as soon as there are lyrics speaking of love, hate, loneliness, or whatever, the listener's emotions are easily tapped. The listener no longer has to interpret the music being performed by the artist. Regardless of the medium, fine art is more demanding for both the artist and the audience than pop art will ever be. The lack of musical substance becomes clearly visible. Many songs use just a few chords, have a melody line that doesn't change much, and there isn't a wide variety of dynamics, density, texture, or timbre in much of what's popular. We certainly could argue that pop music shows the prowess of the recording engineer. If we're to reverse this trend, we need to make a conscious effort in promoting the abstract aspects of music. This problem extends far beyond a disinterest for jazz and classical music. It's a problem for high-quality music in general. The dominance of words and visuals has led many to believe that listening to rap or watching music videos is the full extent of what music has to offer. If this continues, they will be missing out on a huge part of what not just music and art, but life has to offer. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.